Welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea, and this week we talk to the best book club ever. You won't be surprised to find out they're from Cork. Stephanie Preisner tells us how not to buy a book for a present. And congratulations to the Unpost Irish Book Awards Book of the Year. Darren Nigrifa's A Ghost in the Throat. If you'd like to listen back to the podcast, we spoke to her about it a couple of weeks ago. But first... This is our final regular book show of 2020. Don't panic, we will, of course, be bringing you a bumper edition this coming Christmas Day. When we all got past our reader's block this year, we mostly headed for the world of fiction, escape and diversion. But 2020 has also proven to be a great year for non-fiction, not least for the man sitting opposite me. Mark Teig is a news journalist with The Sunday Times and also co-author with Paul Rowan of Champagne Football, John Delaney and The Betrayal of Irish Football, The Inside Story. Mark, you're very welcome to the book show. Delighted to be here, Rick. Um, you'll be giving us some recommendations for some books of investigative journalism you've particularly loved uh, shortly. But firstly, I mean, congratulations on the success of the book. Are you surprised in just how well it's done? Yeah, well, it's, it's the first time. I'm a first time author, I suppose. My my co-author, Paul, is his third time round. He he wrote you know the team that Jack built back in the 90s and he had a book on Ryan's daughter out there earlier this year. So we were told that we're the biggest selling uh, non-fiction book, uh, biggest selling Irish published book as well so far in 2020. Um, so that's just, it's it's great for us. You know, we're, we're, we're amazed at the pickup on it. That, yeah, I suppose, you know, that, and it's, it's had that crossover appeal, you know, people who have an interest in Irish football obviously will, will have enjoyed it, but also people from the world of business, people who enjoy dark humour, people who like a po- bit of politics, you know, so it's had that crossover appeal, you know, that Auntie Anne and uh, your Uncle Tom, you know, all these different people have enjoyed the book and made contact with it and say, look, what a page turner. So yeah, it's been fantastic to have that reception. It's the Irish Sports Book of the Year, but technically it's not a book about sport itself. Do you think that's one of the reasons that maybe it's gotten to a wider audience? De- definitely. You know, I'm, I'm a news journalist. I'm not a, a football correspondent. So um, when we were writing it, um, I very much wanted to aim it at a, a general audience. Um, I wanted to make it a, a fast-paced book. You know, look, look at some of my inspiration, I suppose. You know, I'd have... Um, All the President's Men was a book I would have reverted back to a lot, you know, and that... The journalists in that, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, obviously have uh, you know made themselves characters in it because you know they, they were talking about the d- dynamic of how they got the story out there, and that's we we wanted to tell our story as well about how we got the stories out there, how Paul interacted with John Delaney when he went up to Abbottstown and was you know uh, re- referred to the guardy and had to deal with the boys in blue just for you know daring to go into the building. We wanted to not not just tell the football story and the dark humour that is involved with, you know, following Irish football to all these far-flung places, but also tell the story of how us, us as journalists got, got about breaking the story and, and getting it out there. So there was a lot of politics involved, um, a lot of, you know, what we think were breaches of company law. So it's, it's, it falls into a crime story in some ways. It's obviously a story about journalism as well. And so it does cross a lot of genres. And this book does does have its Hollywood moments, if that's what you want to call it. I mean, the, the, the biggest probably being the time in the four courts, the Saturday of St. Patrick's weekend, when the FAI attempted to get an injunction against the Sunday Times. Was that the moment where you went, I think we might have a book in this? No, um, like that was kind of where the story broke for us. You know, we'd been working on the story for two weeks. We'd got I'd got the envelope on my desk anonymously, you know, about this hundred thousand euro uh, loan. And when John Delaney 
la- at the last minute, like we called it a last gasp tackle, our, our, our barrister in the forecourse that night said, you know, wh- why is he delayed so long? And there's a lot of drama in that, obviously. Um, it was only later, as the story continued to develop, you know, John Delaney was subsequently suspended after an Oroctus hearing uh, about three, four weeks after we broke that original story. We, we got more and more whistleblowers came forward to us. We were writing about payments, FAI payments to his ex-girlfriend, uh, payments on the FAI credit card. And then Paul, my, my co-author, um, he, he, he landed this big treasure trove of FAI documents, uh, FAI board minutes going back months and years, actually. And it was then we said, I said, we were locked in a room trying to do a big two, two-page spread in the Sunday Times. And even, you know, that was going to be 4,000 words. And we were say, I remember saying to Paul, we have a book in this now, you know, definitely. Um, this is fly on the wall stuff, you know, like we literally have verbatim quotes of what John Delaney told the board at X time, you know, now we can, I think we can do this justice. So it was then, that was about May or June last year, I, I remember saying, look, there's a book in this. That's the Woodward and Bernstein moment. Um, now that we've referenced them a couple of times, you are going to talk about nonfiction that you love yourself. We will start there. We'll start with Woodward and Bernstein with all the president's men. Yeah, I suppose like I've always been uh, fascinated in the process of journalism. You know, how, how do you get a story? How do you stand up the sources? Um, how do you get stories past your editor? You know, how do you get your editor on side? Why would an editor pick holes in a story and not back you maybe? And so, you know, All the President's Men is just a fascinating read. Like it's it's a page turner, how the, the Washington Post journalist broke Watergate, the Watergate story and continued it over a, a long period of time, you know, through Nixon's re-election and uh, finally forcing his resignation. So it's just a fantastic page turner, you know, non-fiction. And uh, yeah, that, when Penguin were talking to us, they were saying, well, we were talking about the format of the book or the way to write it. And they were like, you definitely have to put yourself in this book. And I was like, you're, as a journalist and news journalist, you're always told you're not in the story. And quite clearly, there's a reason for that. But in the book, it's supposed to tell the story properly. We have to tell what it was like to, to be on the receiving end of that injunction. You know, John Delaney looking to sue me personally uh, for breach of his privacy for daring to report on this. So we made ourselves characters. And that was a definitely a touchstone for me to refer back to how do they write about themselves as being in the story, you know, without making it awful you know you don't want to be glorifying yourself or anything like that it's um so yeah all the president's men is that touchstone but there's, there's other books i suppose i would, would have referred to um and read recently um john carreyrou's book bad blood um on theranos which is a you know a silicon valley startup where um the the the, the founder of the company had created this black box that was going to you know do a kind of a pinprick test on your finger and the, this machine would would tell you all your ailments you know and he had all these investors from silicon valley and, and and washington it was a big fraud basically you know the black box wasn't doing what it was supposed to do and uh, john kairu has just written this fantastic book about how he broke that story and you know so he's in there as a protagonist i suppose and uh, also telling about how he got the story and how the wall street journal his his newspaper backed him so that was another kind of touchstone for me as well and that's called bad blood tell me about the fitzpatrick tapes uh, tom Lyons and brian carey yeah again like so a book that just blew my mind when it came out 10 years ago telling the story about how anglo collapsed and it was a bit different from our book in terms of they had access to Sean Fitzpatrick and they did a lot of interviews with him. But again, they they knitted it all together with some great journalism. And it was a real page turner showing how, you know, from a personal perspective, the dynamics of play with the executives and the, the board and uh, the, the golfing out, outings with Brian Cowan. Um, There's some amazing stories in that book. It was a real page. I finished it in two nights. And so, again, that was a book I referred back to. It's just a great kind of uh, fly on the wall business book, you know, an Irish current affairs book. 
And another one of those books that is kind of intertwined with that and set in the same universe is Citizen Quinn, Gavin Daly and Ian Kyo. There's so many characters in, in Irish life, you know, business life. And uh, like John Delaney was one of those characters. Obviously, Sean Quinn was the richest man in Ireland. Citizen Quinn is a fantastic book, kind of charting his rise as a, you know, a quarry man into being this guy who ran insurance companies, glass uh, bottle manufacturing companies, a real g- global kind of Irish businessman and how he whittled it all away with these crazy bets on Anglo-Irish Bank, you know, where he was buying up these contracts for difference. And again, it's it's an insider's account. So again, the thing that makes these books compelling is that you've got under the skin. They're, obviously, the sourcing is very important. You're talking to people who were there at the table or in the business meetings and, you know, you can get fantastic stories and it really makes a compelling read when you've got that inside story. And maybe just to finish, tell us a little bit about Ronan Farrow's book from uh, last year, Catch and Kill. Yeah, again, this is a fantastic book. You know, it's given insider journalists account of how they broke a huge story. So Ronan Farrow, who's the son of uh, Mio Farrow and Woody Allen, he was a reporter with NBC and he was working for over a year on the Harvey Weinstein um, story. Like the Sunday Times backed me against John Delaney and the FBI. Ronan Farrow was talking about how NBC fought against him every step of the way where, you know, Weinstein and his lawyers and, and, and powerful allies were ringing up NBC executives and the story was basically killed, you know, um, with NBC. So he had to go to another outlet, the New Yorker magazine, to, to write the story. And there was former Mossad agents following him around Manhattan. So it's a great you know, insider's account of how he got that story out there, how he worked to, against his own news organisation, really, to, to break that story with another, with the magazine at the end. Mark Tyke, congratulations again about uh, Champagne Football and thanks for talking to me on The Book Show. Thanks, Rick. Champagne Football by Mark Tighe and Paul Rowan is published by Sandy Cove. Just to recap for your Christmas non-fiction list, the books Mark was recommending were All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, Bad Blood by John Cario, The Fitzpatrick Tapes by Tom Lyons and Brian Carey, Citizen Quinn by Gavin Daly and Ian Kyo, and Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. Speaking of shopping lists... When it comes to Christmas presents, are you a serial book buyer? Do you buy others what you like, what you think they like, or what you think they should read? And flipping it around, what do the books others buy for you say about how they see you? With me is somebody who loves to get the gift of a book, but who has a number of rules about how to go about choosing that book. Unsurprisingly, Stephanie Preisner. How is this unsurprising? I'm taking offence immediately. Just because you're very specific about things like for for instance okay everybody has a, a list of books they were given to them as kids because you know they were books that people thought that you should like yes and it's the same with any gift it says an awful lot about the person giving it to you you know it can be kind of insulting i remember as a kid getting loads of enid blyton books i hated the famous five it was just nonsense and it didn't feature real kids it didn't reflect my life in any way but clearly the person giving it to me had enjoyed it themselves and thought that i should enjoy it It was just full of prissy British children going on an adventure to a nearby river. I mean, I don't want to make jam out of the things that I find on my day out with my friends. I was a 90s kid. I had a Tamagotchi. I didn't want to climb trees and go on those adventures. I couldn't climb trees. The bottom branches of all the trees were cut off because of health and safety. We weren't even allowed to run in the playground. Those books had no... I couldn't relate to the impulse of any of those kids. As an adult, have things gotten any better? I mean, yes, because I also earn money and can buy my own books and I'm not at the behest of other people to provide my entertainment for me. But I still do get books that I judge quite severely because I think they reflect that person's idea of me. Like, 
I came out as an introvert once and then I've had about six copies of the book Quiet, which is a great book. But six people's light bulbs went off and were like, I'll get this for Stephanie. And you, you've obviously forgotten that I was one of those people who recommended that book to you. I think you were the first and then I bought it myself and then other people just gave it to me. Oh yeah, I also got loads of copies of The Year of Magical Thinking when my grandmother died because people seem to think that's a pure salve for sadness when, when you lose someone. But my grandmother was not my husband and I didn't find it helpful at all. I also have loads of The Little Book of Cam, which is that little afterthought book that's by the cash register. That people buy from me because clearly I need to calm down. Which I'm not really doing myself a service now because I've gotten so emphatic about these books. But I don't need another copy of that tiny little book. There is an adjunct problem here which I've dealt with. Which is I run a book club on Facebook. And frequently people ask questions like uh, I have a 14 year old son. uh, What should he read? I have no further information about that kid. I don't know what he likes. I don't know his interests. I don't know what he's read before. There was one that turned up uh, the week just gone. Uh, there was a lady obviously looking for a book, I think for her father. And all we knew was that he was in his 70s and he liked sailing. That would no further information that about his reading history. So much. That is like when people say, oh, Rick, you have a seven-year-old. I have a seven-year-old. Bring them over. They'll get on great. That is not like age and gender are not the only two things you need to know about someone to pick an appropriate gift or to pick an appropriate friend. If you are going to buy someone a book, you're on to a winner, first of all. That is a great gift. Only if you do your research to find out what they might like. It is very confronting when someone gives you a book that they loved and you don't because it makes you question your friendship that person and it really can put a strain in a relationship so buy them a book voucher if, if if that's where we're at always give the caveat of I loved this I'd love to know what you think of it do not purport to know what someone will love just give the gift and give the gift of an open mind for their response so what I'm getting so far is uh, get a voucher that's a great idea and you know do a little bit of research that's great do one more thing for me yes I do people who work in bookshops are incredible they are an asset to this country use them but give them some adjectives don't go up to them like people do to you and say I want a book for my father he likes sailing and he's 70 what else give them some adjectives and then they will return with a perfect book for your father and sadly that's now it for this series and for us for now for this year have a lovely Christmas have a wonderful new year and Stephanie Prisner we will see you in 2021 I hope so happy Christmas Rick Sadly, for the last time this year, I get to hand over the reins of the show to a book club. Here's Anne Murray to tell us about the best book club ever. That's their name in Mallow in County Cork. I'm very proud to be a member of the best book club ever. We're based in Mallow in County Cork. Our book club evolved from a mother and toddlers group and was established in 2008. We have nine members, which allows everyone to have their say and enables us to fit comfortably in the snug in Albert Lynch's bar or around our kitchen tables. We're a diverse and eclectic bunch of various nationalities, including American, Dutch, English, and we even have a dub. We read a book and meet to discuss it every month. This year, we have continued our monthly meetings via Zoom. The name reflects what our book club means to us. And in addition to our reading adventures, it has given us years of laughs and friendship and counselling and happiness. Every year, we nominate our book of the year. And for 2020, one of the frontrunners is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which we all enjoyed very much. 
So, in the week that the first man to be given the COVID vaccine in the UK was called William Shakespeare, it seems rather apt to be talking about Hamnet. Here's Michelle Downey from Mallow to set the scene. Like a Shakespeare play, Hamnet catapults us to Stratford-upon-Avon for a behind-the-scenes, intimate view of the famous poet and playwright. Historical fiction, celebration of love, complex family relationships, and of course, the villain, death looming in the wings off stage, waiting for his opportunity. When reading this book, you feel like you're watching the scenes unfold, a privileged voyeur, and as you read the final words, you sit still for a few moments, inwardly applauding the journey this tale has taken you on. She was on our second show this year. There is a wonderful symmetry to her returning for our second last show of 2020 as well. It gives me great pleasure to say hello, Maggie O'Farrell. Hello, Rick. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for for coming on again. Uh, it's kind of a different experience though than the last time I spoke to you because at this point, I'd say you could wallpaper your house with all of the appearances for Hamlet on end of year <laughs> lists and the Women's Prize for Fiction. I, I'm hoping it's been an enjoyable few months since we spoke in April. It's been a strange old year, hasn't it? It would be a bit weird for me to say, yeah, I've had a great year. <laughs> because, you know, in some ways it's been a terrible year, in some ways it's been lovely. So, I think like like everybody else's 2020, there have been highs and lows. But I was certainly that I, I would be useless at papering my house with anything, and I certainly would never paper it with anything like that. But I mean, you have made the most of 2020 as well, in that you've got another book out now. Admittedly, in a, something a field you've never really done anything in before, where snow angels go. That's now out. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's my first book for children, and it is about a little girl who wakes one night to discover that she has a visitor in her room. It's a snow angel that she made the previous winter, and he's come back, and he tells her that he's there to save her life. Um, so it's a story that I made up for my own children, actually. It was just something that I made up off the cuff. It was actually when one of my daughters was very ill. She was in the back of an ambulance, and she was very scared, um, and she was cold. She was freezing cold because um, she was in shock. And I said to her, it's okay, it's okay. It's just a snow angel standing behind you. Because I always remember my granny always used to say to me whenever I did anything uh, naughty or risky, she used to say that your guardian angel was watching over you. So I've always been really intrigued with this idea of angels that watch over you. So I wanted to write a story that's, um, that's kind of reassuring for children, but also builds resilience. It helps them cope in certain situations and it helps them feel safe and secure. You know? And I think we, need, we, we all need that, I think, more than ever at the moment, don't we? Okay, the book is called Where Snow Angels Go and it's out now, but we're here to talk about Hamnet, or rather the book club that we have is here to talk about it. We're going to take the first mm. question from the best book club ever. Uh, this is starting to sound like an endorsement. Here's Neve McCormack. Hamnet was published in March 2020, just as COVID-19 was beginning to take hold across the world. The story is set during the 16th century when the bubonic plague was rife and includes a fascinating description of the transfer of the disease across Europe. How did you react to this extraordinary turn of events? Well, it is strange, you know, obviously I never, I never saw it coming. And I do remember when I wrote the book, which was, what was it, you know, three or four years ago, I was starting to write the book then. Um, I remember kind of sitting and really consciously trying to imagine what it would be like to live through a time where everybody was terrified of a disease everybody it was at the forefront of everybody's mind and you knew that there was you know you had a risk of contagion every time you met someone or saw someone I mean obviously the people in the 16th century had no idea how the bubonic plague was spread it was only discovered near at the end of the 19th century that it was fleas 
So I do remember having a kind of conscious thought, what would it be like? How could it be? And I and I had these maps up on my wall of Elizabethan trade routes and I, I had diagrams of the life cycle of fleas because I was trying to work out, you know, how this disease came all the way from China, swept across Europe. I mean, at one point it killed one quarter of the world's population. You know, there, there was nothing like the Black Death. It was horrifying. It could kill a completely healthy adult in 24 hours you know, quite rightly so, they were all terrified of it. Um, so it, it is odd, you know, because I think the funny thing about Hamlet is that when I wrote that scene, particularly the chapter that uh, Neve is talking about, where I've traced the, the journey of the flea all the way to Warwickshire, all the way from Alexandria, when I wrote it, it was just about research and about imagination and trying to put this together. But now when I look back on it, it, feel, it feels very different because, of course, those maps that I have had on my study wall at the time look exactly like the infographics we were all looking at in February and March. So it is strange. I think Hamlet is one of those books that, one of, one of my only books, actually, that I've ever written that I think my relationship with it has changed because of the year in which it's been published, because of what we've all lived through since I finished it. So it, it, is, it, it kind of continues to change, I think. The second question then comes from Natalie Gelderman. Historically... We don't know a great deal about Agnes or Anne Hathaway. She seems to be known as Shakespeare's older wife, who was a countrywoman stuck in Stratford-upon-Avon and who didn't fit in London society. We all loved the manner in which she is portrayed in Hamnet, though, as a person who is at one with nature, a herbalist and a healer who is rumoured to have special powers. She is grounded and secure in her world, while the unnamed Shakespeare is trying to find his path in life. Did you make a conscious decision at the outset, not only to give Agnes a voice, but to make her the more interesting character and redress the balance in her favour? I mean, I don't think it, it wasn't a conscious decision that I thought I need her to be more interesting than him. It wasn't a kind of sense of uh, competition between them. I think I was just trying to you know, obviously we know so little about her. You know, we know very little about William um, himself, but we know even less about her. There's no record even of her birth because she was born before parish records began. But we do know that she was 26 um, to his 18 when they got married and that she was probably around three months pregnant. Um, but that's sort of it. But th this hasn't stopped, you know, scholars, uh, historians, biographers, uh, screenplay writers of Oscar-winning films, other novelists from treating her with such hostility and... Um, just a, an incredible amounts of criticism. I don't know why she's attracted so much hatred and criticism and actually just downright misogyny. People are determined, I don't know why, to give uh, Shakespeare a kind of retrospective divorce. They want to push this narrative that she was illiterate, that she was a peasant. You know, I've read in black and white in a very, very learned biography, she was ugly. <laughs> There's no evidence for that whatsoever. There's one portrait of her and actually she's very beautiful. She has a real look of Stata Ronan. That very sort of narrow, high cheekbone face. So I, I just became really furious about all this when I was researching the book. And I wanted to I wanted to ask readers to forget all this stuff that they think they know about her and open themselves up to a new interpretation. There's one tiny, tiny little shred of information that I found about her that later in life, when they were living in the larger house that Shakespeare bought for his wife and daughters after Hamlet died, that she ran a very successful malting business which doesn't, to me, it just gave me this glimpse of this woman who wasn't sitting at home in Stratford weeping and feeling resentful that her husband was away. I thought, actually, maybe she was just a really good, strong businesswoman just doing her own thing. I think Saoirse Ronan could be a great piece of casting for the movie. Uh, final question <laughs> this week in the book club uh, from Mallow in County Cork. It's Nula Glanton. I would like to ask about the use of names in the book. 
you use Hamnet rather than Hamlet, Agnes instead of Anne, and Shakespeare himself is not named at all. Why did you choose to do this? And were you daunted by portraying such a well-known historical figure as William Shakespeare? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I was, yeah, in short, I was very daunted about portraying Shakespeare. And actually, this is a book I've wanted to write for a really long time. And that was one of the main, one of the reasons that I prevaricated about it for so long, because I just thought, you can't do it. How can you? How can you write a novel? I mean, the thing, the thing about names, I think, in the 16th century is that they were very unstable and that spelling was very unstable. So Hamnet and Hamlet are actually the same name. It's just that people wrote them differently and they didn't particularly bother, they didn't worry about it. I mean, Shakespeare himself spelt his surname, I think, in you know, maybe three or four different ways on different documents in his handwriting. And he, he often spelt it with an X, which leads some people to believe that actually he probably pronounced it Shakespeare, <laughs> maybe not Shakespeare at all. So he himself, you know, his, his own spelling of his own name was unstable. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, one of the big revelations for me when I was writing the book is reading uh, the woman we know as Anne Hathaway's father's will. So he was called Richard Hathaway and was a sheep farmer. And he uh, died a year before she got married. And he left her a very generous dowry. In it, he referred to her as my daughter, Agnes. And it would have been pronounced a bit closer to the French, Agnes or Annes. So you can see why perhaps a clerk could, could have just written Anne instead. So so I, I wanted to give that name back to her. But it was and one of the reasons I didn't name Shakespeare was partly because, you know, his name carries such enormous heft. It lands in any sentence like a huge kind of <laughs> lead weight dropping into it. And I just couldn't write a sentence. I found that I couldn't write a fictional sentence saying... William Shakespeare sat down and ate breakfast, you know, and instantly I felt like an idiot and thought, well, I, I'm pulled out of the narrative here. So I decided not to name him at all because his name, it means too much. It carries too much weight. Before I let you go, are you looking forward to Christmas? Oh, I really am. I do love Christmas. I'm getting my tree at the weekend and me and my youngest daughter really really excited about that we've already got all the decorations out <laughs> I think we all do it and I was saying I for one will not be sad to see the back of 2020 I think we'll get a lot of people agreeing with you on that Maggie O'Farrell it has been lovely again as usual to talk to you thanks so much thank you so much Rick it was a pleasure to talk to you Hamnet is published by Tinder Press and Where the Snow Angels Go is published by Walker Books. Thanks to Maggie O'Farrell and to the best book club ever in Mallow for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode in 2021, drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. We won't be talking to you again next week, but I will talk to you on Christmas Day at 5pm here on RTE Radio 1. Until then, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.